Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the proposed new Brexit deal, Scottish independence and one possible argument for Brexit, with Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Sophie Traherne, Senior Government Relations Specialist. Well, hello. In a week that saw phrases like, we have more work to do, and it's extremely hard to get a deal in place, we're on the eve of finding out whether the house of cards that is Brexit has been given the green light for another season, or whether this is the final flourish. With me to discuss this and more, Sophie Traherne and Will Hobbs. Sophie, first of all, can I say how nice it is to have some political authority back on the podcast? Um, We've been talking to Will over the last few weeks, and he seems to think that he can answer most topical political questions with lectures on medieval history. Now, we've got a load of stuff to cover this week. The Brexit story is moving along fast, and with it, the wider political landscape. So let's start off with the latest on Brexit specifically. Then we can move on to some of the peripheral issues. So, Sophie, perhaps you could start by giving us an update on where we are. Um, yep, it's been a bit of a roller coaster in terms of the prospects of a Brexit deal over recent weeks. But yesterday morning, we had an announcement via Twitter that a deal has been agreed between Brussels and the UK government. Uh, Boris tweeted that we've got a great new deal that takes back control. And then we also had a tweet from President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, who said, where there is a will, there is a deal. We have one. Uh, and also key EU stakeholders all piled in to indicate their support for the deal, including, importantly, the Irish government. Um, the main difference between this deal and the the deal from Theresa May is that the there are changes to the Northern Ireland backstop. Um, both the EU and the UK have made uh, significant concessions around things like customs arrangements, VAT, uh, and also in creating a new mechanism on, on consent, which will essentially give the Northern Ireland Assembly a, a voice on uh, EU law applying in Northern Ireland. So that 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 deal, Sophie, is is it's not the end, is it? It's almost the it's almost the end of the beginning, so to speak. What are the next steps? Yeah, so now the focus is very much on uh, Westminster and uh, there's a lot of focus on the parliamentary numbers because remember this deal has to be voted through Parliament. Uh, MPs are sitting on Saturday, this Saturday the 19th of October. Um, As a reminder, MPs don't normally sit on a Saturday. This is actually the first uh, Saturday sitting since the Falklands War and it's being called Super Saturday. Um, And at this moment, uh, it seems like things will kick off at around 9.30 on Saturday morning with a, a statement from the Prime Minister and the EU Council and then he will move the motion uh, for his Brexit deal and there's a lot of speculation about the parliamentary arithmetic. Uh, Journalists are are creating tables and charts and trying to figure out where the support is. Um, You may have read that the DUP have not given their support for the deal so far. Yeah, so I was was going to ask a a question on that. So this seems to be all over the news this morning, all over the radio, all over the television. The DUP aren't supporting the deal. The whip was removed from a large number of uh, members of the Tory party. So what are the mechanics by which, even if it, even if it does pass by, by a, a, a whisker, what are the sort of the mechanics that might see this deal pass through? What, what are the alliances that might need to be formed? Yeah, as you said, there are a few different groups to consider. Um, you've got, yeah, the 10 DUP MPs who are remaining firm at the moment. Uh, you've got the European Reform Group, um, who were the ones who were notoriously blocking Theresa May's deal. You've got the Labour backbenchers, those in leave voting, voting constituencies who might vote for the deal. The Labour frontbench and also the group of 21 former Tories, if you remember where it's spelled from the party by Boris Johnson just a few weeks ago. Um, 
in terms of the, the, the numbers, as a reminder, um, 286 MPs voted for Theresa May's deal when she put it to Parliament for a third time. And that included many of the ERG, some who are now in government, and it also included five Labour MPs. The magic number is, is 320 MPs to secure a victory. So on the assumption that the 286 vote again for the deal, he's around 34 MPs short for the deal. And obviously, number 10, we're hoping that the ERG and the DUP would fill this gap. And they might still. It's a, a long time till Saturday in politics. Um, mm-hmm. But if not, he will have to look at, to those lo- Labour rebels. And that's where those alliances might um, might come into play. Can I just ask, Sophie, so on, on that... You, um... You know, you used to say that the DUP would be a good indicator of where the European research group, the you know, so-called Spartans, would go. Is that still the case? Because it seems like the Prime Minister has been working hard to separate that vote. Is that still something that we would assume? Um, to an extent, there is still, you know, a, 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 that relationship between the DUP and the ERG. But actually, you will have seen in the news a couple of the sort of um, really prominent ERG members coming out saying that they will support the deal. Um, people like Andrew Bridgen, um, uh, obviously people like Jacob Rees-Mogg are now in the government. Um, so actually, I think, you know, you might see some of those ERGs pu- pulling away from the traditional position of supporting the DEP position. Um, but I mean, I would say that the numbers are constantly moving. Um, it's looking incredibly tight. Um, it's currently Friday morning. As I said, there's a long time uh, till the votes on Saturday afternoon uh, when we expect them. Uh, right now, it's just simply too close to call. Right. So, Sophie, that's the Brexit deal. The next question I've got for you centres around a general election. What, what's the likelihood of us having a general election now? And um, and and where, where does the where does the where does Boris Johnson stand in that? Yeah, so the timing of, a, of an early uh, election is obviously quite heavily dependent on what happens on Saturday. You know, how does the PM react if he loses the vote? Um, does he try and trigger an election himself? Uh, not a not a bad narrative. Parliament's blocked my deal. It's refusing to deliver Brexit. So I need a majority to get this thing done. Um, remember on Saturday as well, if he doesn't pass a deal, uh, the law of the land actually dictates that the Prime Minister's got to request that extension of Article 50. Uh, this is the Ben Act that was passed a few weeks ago. So that comes into play. Um, also, how does Jeremy Corbyn react if, if the deal is lost on Saturday? Uh, does he put down a motion of no confidence? And then we're back discussing things like the prospect of a caretaker government to deliver an Article 50 extension. Um, so, you know, general election is, is, is still very much being talked about in Westminster and it could still be this year. I did actually hear that local authorities are already booking up town halls and community centres just before Christmas uh, to, u- to use as polling stations, putting at risk uh, some nativity productions. Um, and, you know, along with talking about a general election obviously there's a lot of focus on on polling at the moment which is always very interesting um as ever it's difficult uh, given different polls say different things but you still have those four main parties battling it out with the lib dems and the brexit party still very much present and making life difficult for the two main parties um you know there's also quite a bit of analysis at the moment um the british electoral studies for example had some interesting commentary on the fact that more people are switching vote choice than ever before we're seeing weakening party attachment smaller parties doing well but then maybe not holding on to their voters the next time round. And then, of course, you have the short, sharp shocks, which impact on voter behaviour, things like the financial crisis, Scottish referendum, uh, and of course, the, the EU referendum. Um, you know, are we seeing this move from left to right actually change to leave remain? So lots of uh, analysis and, and questions from, from pollsters. It sounds a little bit from an investor's point of view that um, actually we should be, <laughs> rather than as we get closer to the denouement, more information becoming available and the range of choices narrowing, actually, this seems to 
to be going in the opposite direction. Will, is there anything that investors should be looking at particularly or should they be giving this a wide berth? Well, I mean, when we're talking about our positions with regards to the UK, you know, we've for a long time said that you want to be very careful about um, imagining that you have some edge here to call the twists and turns. Um, we have pointed out for a while that sterling has looked cheap. Um, and that seems to have been sort of borne out a little bit by the sharp move in sterling in the last week as we've seen these events pan out. Those weren't things that were priced in uh, to uh, to capital markets. Now, in portfolios at the moment, we are one of the ways we're playing this scenario that there's just a bit too much pessimism that has been baked into the whole situation uh, is that we own a little bit less. Uh, we, we own fewer uh, gilts, you know, uh, uh, UK government bonds um, than uh, our benchmark. Uh, and that's been a, a positive um, driver of performance over the last last week for, for, for our, uh, our funds and portfolios. That's helpful. So whatever happens, it looks like we're moving towards a general election. Currently, the polls are indicating that, that Boris Johnson might have the edge, although I think it's fair to say that we now all have a pretty healthy scepticism about polls after the event of the last few years. But Sophie, we've looked at polling for the general election. Will, perhaps we flip over to you. And it seems that this is relevant in the US too. You pointed out a few weeks ago, the way that the polls measure public support for the president. As that evolves, this will have an important bearing on the prospects for impeachment uh, and and the likelihood of his removal from office. Is that still a position that we hold? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a small increase in support for impeachment over the last week by the looks of things. Uh, nothing game-changing yet. Interestingly, we have started to see a few polls um, uh, imagining um, how Mike Pence uh, would fare against the current sort of, you know, some of the current Democrat frontrunners um, in some kind of political potential swing states like um, Ohio. Um, the answer is a bit better than Trump, uh, a bit better than Trump against Biden, but even Stevens against the rest. But I think, you know, Sophie points out, you know, and we all sort of have learned from the sort of experiences of the last few years in terms of polling. Uh, we've got to treat it quite carefully. And uh, certainly um, we've got to look at um, some of the underlying questions that are being asked very carefully. The wording uh, matters a lot as to the responses you get. Um, so it, it's uh, certainly interesting. But at the moment, what we can say in the US is that um, the, the sort of the, the polls with regards to impeachment haven't yet stabilized by the looks of things. All right. Now, another thing that happened was that um, there was another uh, democratic leadership debate. Did anything come out of that, Will, that we should know about? Well, again, it's very early days. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the eventual list of victors who were nowhere in the race at this stage of the proceedings in the past, um, it, it, it's a considerable list. I'm not even sure, actually, that Bill Clinton had even declared himself running by this uh, uh, by this stage. Uh, some uh, a, a listener may be able to correct me on that. But nonetheless, you've got um, the front runners, you know, who are all um, septuagenarians, Biden, Warren and Sanders. Uh, now that first bit wouldn't be relevant, but what you've got in the last uh, uh, couple of weeks is obviously uh, Bernie Sanders did have, uh, unfortunately, a heart attack, which is quite electorally significant in that point. So they were looking at this debate to see how he responded to this. Uh, and obviously Joe Biden, um, with regards to the kind of the Hunter Biden uh, story, had um, had some uh, had some issues to, to face as well. What it looks like at the moment is that Elizabeth Warren um, is now the sort of, you know, the front runner uh, or at least uh, has, has sort of cemented her status as top two, top three, um, which sets us up for a very interesting uh, presidential race, if that was to be the case, if she was to be the, the Democrat candidate. Um, because what she is proposing in her manifesto or in her sort of list of commitments uh, is to the left of probably any Democrat candidate for the presidency since maybe George McGovern was uh, trounced by Nixon for his second term in 1972 before he was impeached in 1974. Now, the other
other political narrative at the moment is the evolving potential for a repeat Scottish referendum. Sophie, any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, and we had uh, uh, two colleagues attend SNP conference uh, uh, week, week before last, um, and it was very interesting because they went... SNP went into that conference uh, quite buoyant because there was a poll, I think it was the Sunday Times poll, that showed support for Scottish independence risen to 50%. Um, so they went in, you know, using that poll and that narrative. And Nicola Sturgeon's been really clear, and she said in her conference speech, that, you know, a second Scottish independence referendum must happen next year, um, and that she'll ask the UK government for formal consent by the end of this year. Um, so remember, they need uh, uh, um, the UK government to essentially give consent to to have a legal referendum in Scotland. Um, so it is the, the pressure is on and we can expect with every, all the all the noise going on in Westminster, we can expect uh, Nicola Sturgeon to, to put her point across on that second referendum in the coming weeks. Now, Will, what about you? Is there anything we can say on the economics of Scottish independence? Is there an angle we should be aware of? Well, I mean, I think we can now say with some confidence that these processes, uh, these proceedings can be pretty, pretty messy. Um, I mean, when we're looking at it from this perspective, there's not too much we can say, to be honest, because a lot depends economically on where the line is drawn in the North Sea and indeed uh, the debt. Uh, and I think one of the points that we made the last time, you know, back in 2014, which seems like another lifetime, you know, this was kind of patient zero, wasn't it, I guess? The point we made then was that Scotland would effectively be a new issuer in international markets. And one of the reasons why the UK can borrow for, you know, such a long period for almost nothing is because we've got a very long track record um, as a borrower in international markets markets with only really a couple of hiccups uh, along the way. So it'd be interesting to see what Scotland could borrow at. Um, uh, and that would have a sort of bearing on sort of, you know, the, the, the ability to be a successful independent state to a certain extent. Fine. So finally, um, I know that you guys have argued, you, the strategy team, have long argued that while you think that Brexit would be a headwind for the UK economy, it needn't necessarily be a catastrophe. And I think you wrote an original article on the subject all those years ago titled Purgatory Not Hell, which uh, seems to be a gratuitous reference to medieval history, Will. Sorry to bring that up. But is there a more is there a more positive scenario here? You've said before that the UK belongs to a different class of economies relative to those in the EU. Is that difference enough for this to be a good argument for Brexit? Well, it's really interesting, Toby. I mean, there are a load of ways that a country can kind of configure its institutions, its systems of production and product specialisation, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there are kind of two of interest here. So you've got Anglo-Saxon capitalism, um, also la labelled kind of liberal market economies. Um, and this captures um, kind of most of the English-speaking worlds. So you get you know, the US, the UK, Australia, Canada, that kind of thing. Um, the other is labelled in various ways kind of capitalism of the Rhine or coordinated market economies. Uh, and this would include kind of German-speaking countries, the Nordics, Benelux, um, Europe, broadly speaking, and Japan. Um, Italy and France, actually, within that, are a little bit more difficult to categorise. But I'm cutting a, a lot of corners here, but these two labels describe totally different structures, literally from soup to nuts, in terms of how you elect officials, to how business relationships work, all that kind of thing. Now, there's no right and wrong. Um, I think that's the first uh, point to do. The, the different outputs that come from these two very different types of economy um, are probably both needed uh, by the world economy. So they both have a role to play here. Um, but it might suggest that the UK was never the, quite the right fit 
for the euro, the actual currency union, uh, long term. What it does not suggest, however, and we want to be absolutely clear about this, uh, is that the UK um, economically can afford to just walk away from the euro and it doesn't matter about the terms of trade between the two countries, that the trade negotiations coming up are just not as important as those that were coming up in the US or with other English-speaking countries, because that's unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, that trade gravity theory that we've talked about a lot here. Europe will be our most important trade partner, whether we like it or not, for a long time to come. So doing advantageous trade deals with the rest of the world will be rendered irrelevant if we operate on significantly worse terms of trade with Europe. Uh, but it does sort of, you know, speak to sort of, you know, whether the UK should be part of uh, that currency project or not long term. Well, amongst this myriad of confusion, one thing that uh, remains certain is that the news over the weekend is going to be very interesting and exciting. All that remains is for me to thank our guests, Chief Investment Officer Will Hobbs and Government Relations Expert Sophie Traherne. This time next week, we may be staring down the barrel of a general election and we may or may not still be part of the European Union. Either way, we'll be here to discuss it and what it means for private investors. And hopefully you'll be able to join us again for another word on the street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.